Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In our modern world of encroaching digital connectivity, is it curiosity that enables individuals and businesses to survive and thrive? On today's episode, we're discussing curiosity and how practicing curiosity can improve our private and professional lives. We're joined by businessman, academic and co-author of the curious advantage, Garrick Jones, who takes us through the seven C's of curiosity. Fundamentally, the most successful countries in the world, um, in history, the most successful epochs, you could say we're fundamentally curious. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Today's episode was produced in partnership with Ludic. Back now to Garrick Jones. Hi, everybody. This is Garrick Jones, and um, thank you for joining us today. I'm here to talk to you about um, the process of my writing this book, The Curious Advantage, and about curiosity and what we learned about how to transform our lives through curiosity. Um, Amazing process. I'll also talk about um, why we wrote this book and, and, and what we found about curiosity when we did it. Um, I'm an author and an academic, amongst other things, and a musician. And um, we've been very involved with curiosity and the ideas of curiosity. Uh, and we created a podcast series called Curious Advantage. And part of doing the podcast was to meet as many interesting people as possible and to uh, you know, get to know them and find out their perspectives on uh, curiosity and what makes them curious and us being curious about them. And we did a very wide-ranging uh, research. We sort of did res- neuroscience and we looked at it from anthropological and behavioral and um, history uh, because we wanted to look at curiosity from the perspectives of the individual. What does it mean to be curious as an individual? Also from the perspective of the organization, because we all form ourselves into organizations in these de- days and in these days, and also socially, because society is is really um, how we're all, all framed. The, and the thing about curiosity that we discovered, uh, so many things, was that fundamentally the most successful countries in the world, um, in history, the most successful epochs, you could say were fundamentally curious. And um, we looked at people uh, and and societies like the Republic of Venice and its thousand year history and how curiosity was built into the structures of that society. Um, We looked at uh, the Chinese and the Mongol and and we looked at um, the Ming dynasties there. We we looked at Syria and we looked at Assyria 
Um, and then, you know, today we came up today, we looked at what, what Britain has been doing um, with the Royal Society of Arts and how it structuralized curiosity to kind of help us um, beat the continent, if you want, in the um, in the in the Victoria and the industrial age. So this is, these are not new new ideas. And then from the perspective of the individual, we looked at curiosity. Um, from what does it mean for me? What's happening with neuroscience? What's happening in my brain when I'm being curious? What's happening as I learn? And how does curiosity link with learning? And I think the fundamental question we wanted to ask was, um, how is curiosity valid and, and viable in the digital age? Mainly because of, of the following reason. Well, before I get into that, um, I want to encourage everybody to ask me questions as I go through. Uh, Marcus and the producers will be sending me the questions and I'll try and answer them and weave them through rather than waiting um, at the end. So I want to encourage us to have some kind of a discussion and help me to focus on what I'm talking about. So the interesting thing about curiosity, about um, how it impacts us at the individual level, is we discovered that uh, neuroscientifically, we all know about dopamine, we all know about the hormones that get released, we all know about the hippocampus and how that is related to the fight and flights um, effects that we encounter in any new situation, whether it's entering a new environment or entering a new context, or entering new knowledge. We always are slightly anxious and uneasy until we start to gain confidence and then we start to lay down neural pathways that um, through our curiosity create new knowledge in the brain all reinforced by hormones, all reinforced by neurotransmitters and then of course link, linking to behavior. I think um, the the thing I should start with is 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 um, what is our definition of curiosity, and I would say that as a result of this research and the result of this book, uh, which we published uh, on the first of July, and which is available all over digitally as well as in hard copy, and which we worked finally on during the whole coronavirus lockdown, um, the thing we define curiosity as is a having an attitude of wonder, but having a spirit of adventure. And those two things are go hand in hand. I think my, my fundamental, the thing I learned the most about curiosity was that it's not only just about wondering what if and how and where and why, it was fundamentally um, connected to behavior, fundamentally connected to going out there and doing things and putting yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable and learning to deal with that level of uncom being uncomfortable and going there because uh, that's where we learn the most. The interesting thing about curiosity in the digital age is that we have an infinite um, you know, amount of information, not necessarily knowledge available to us, and how do you make sense of that? How do you weave your way through the labyrinth of uh, the internet and all this data that's available? And the key thing um, for us, as we discovered with curiosity, is that being curious needs to be linked to how you are curious. It, it, it comes back from, um, it's fundamentally linked to behavior. It, it comes back right to the, you know, the meanings of the word. Curious come from, uh, there's the French, of course, curiosity, but uh, when you go back to the Greek, it, it relates to words that link to the gadfly, 
that um, irritates the cow in the field, for example, you know, the cow is always being irritated and it's moving and, and shifting because gadflies continuously irritating it. But it's also linked to um, notions of, of cycles or estrus and curiosity is linked to secular ideas um, and the ideas that you come back and you do things over and over again. And curiosity is fundamentally linked to um, making and doing. And we think um, another one of the big ahas was that if you're curious, you're actually not just wondering something, you're going forward and you are trying something and you are learning by doing and you are getting involved and you're putting yourself at risk in some way to kind of learn more. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, as we go on. The digital has informed everything that we've done in this book. Um, I wrote it with two other authors, Simon Brown and Paul Ashcroft. And um, we came to this book because we've been doing a lot of work on knowledge and culture and um, lots of projects on um, how do we enable uh, organizations and new ways of working using um, you know, digital age. And we kept on coming back to the cultural tropes, if you like, of being in, in, inquisitive, having inquiry, but then also documenting and also learning by doing and making and testing and iterating and sort of designing and so on. Design thinking is, was, came up a lot too. And this idea always got synthesized into curiosity. And then we thought, well, we, let's take all our great conversations and all our research and start just fundamentally putting it into a book. And the way we worked, um, we were in three different places um, around the world. Um, we set up uh, an Evernote, <laughs> an Evernote um, notebook, which we shared. And we started to dump all our research into that from all over the place. Because as I said, we were looking at a kind of multidisciplinary um, idea of what curiosity could be. And after we'd gone through that phase, we realized we needed to start clustering the data. And once we thought about clustering data, we started to understand um, concepts from AI and coding um, and started to use those kinds of algorithms to cluster our data and look at what was emerging in those. And what came out of that exercise were kind of um, seven major groups of thinking around curiosity. And um, we gave them names, and we discovered that five of the seven uh, had words that began with the letter C, which was <laughs> surprising. Uh, and two of them uh, were sort of more general. And so the three of us played a game and said, well, could we come up with uh, all of them with the letter C? And surprise, surprise, we, we could. And out of that was born our seven C's model. And of course, when we came up with the seven C's model, we realized that it, there was a metaphor and a metaphoric connection with um, our idea of exploration and being curious. And, and so we had a metaphor about seven C's. What we don't claim <laughs> that we have a, a model of curiosity that is uh, universal and fixed. <laughs> we don't claim to have figured out curiosity. What we claim is that if you are going to be curious, there are probably seven things you should pay attention to. And those seven things are context, community, curation, creativity and construction, and criticality, 
and confidence. Those are our seven C's. Context, community, curating, creativity, construction, criticality, and confidence. And they all relate. It's a fuzzy system. They all relate. You can use it, but I'll talk about each in turn. And I'll also talk about the podcast. Now, I've got some questions coming in. Jamie asks, what can we do to make sure that our curiosity doesn't become a passive kind of curiosity, consuming information because we're curious, but not engaging, expressing curiosity with other people? Really good question. Because the thing about the internet is that it allows us to pursue all kinds of things that might just give us pleasure, or we might just head down things that reinforce our own beliefs. And the reason why we focus on a chapter on criticality was because we became very aware that how, how do you deal with this infinite thing? How do you deal with ideas of pleasure and just going where you want? And how do you deal with fake news and, and all these other problems that we face with all this information? Criticality holds a lot of answers. Critical thinking, not being critical, but critical thinking, the idea of being able to step back and understand what it's all about and, and specifically understanding our unconscious bias. Uh, that was a huge aha for me around being curious and understanding the filters that we have. Unconscious bias might lead us to go down specific routes that we're not even aware of, whether it's gender or any biases we may have grown up with, you know, epistemic biases that we're not even aware of particularly, but might be encoded in the society around us. And the thing about unconscious bias and criticality we learned a lot from in, um, having chats with investigative journalists. And there's a great podcast on our on, um, on our con, on our <laughs> curious advantage podcast series with um, Sarah Moroglio and David Harrison, who are two great journalists who really talked to us about how they maintain engagement with the topics that they might involve. And they've written up on some really harrowing stories that we all know about, including Grenfell Tower. And how do they engage with with the individuals and the subjects, whoever they may be within this political spectrum, and how do they remain uh, emotionally distant from the day, what they are learning so that they're able to then reflect and synthesize and move on? Um, brilliant question, Jamie. I would suggest really think hard about unconscious bias and criticality because it allows us to learn things and put ourselves at risk and take ourselves into areas that are more difficult for us. It's only when we are being a little uneasy that we truly start to learn. And remember, we only uneasy because we've got dopamine and hormones firing in our brains that kind of putting us in a fight or flight situation. And curiosity is about really going there. It's about going to the difficult things and learning the difficult places. Another question from Marcus, um, how do you remain happily curious when you're surrounded day to day by people who are not curious? Many people become less curious as they age. Is the cause of this behavioral or social or biological? Well, let me deal with both of those um, great questions. Um, we do tend to become less curious as we get older because you know kids are curious. Kids are asking us all the time, why, 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 why? And if you've got kids, you know that there may be times when it just drives you crazy. Um, but be careful as a parent because it is – don't try and, and, and set up the situation where you, you, you're stopping your kids from being curious because curiosity is important for our survival and it's important for our evolution, important for our growth as individuals and as um, a species. The thing about um, we do become 
less curious as we get older because we often become fixed in what we, the way we think the world is. We become fixed in our knowledge of the world based on our experience. It's safe. And in a particular context, we know how these things work. We know what the answers are. But that is safe and that's not curiosity and that's it, it, we, it requires us to be open to go out of things. The best way to do that is to, I believe, join up with people who think very differently to you or to me. Find people who's from different worlds, people who have different um, perspectives or backgrounds, people who have different ways of, of beliefs. Um, and go and work with them and be open with them and, and listen to what they have to say. Be curious about why they believe the way they believe, because what that will do is open us to different ways, different perspectives of doing so. Communities and finding other people who are not like us is a powerful way to stay curious. We also know that there's some great research coming out about the relationship between being curious, engaged with other people, engaged with ideas, and long-term health benefits has health benefits for the heart. Our heart rates come down and we're more relaxed the more curious we are. We think their heart rate, uh, that there are benefits for Alzheimer's. People who are engaged with ideas, even if they are getting older and they have some early signs of onset of Alzheimer's, could, being curious and being connected to other people and asking questions or being in slightly different but safe environments um, keeps people stimulated and may have an impact on the sedentary impacts of Alzheimer's down the line. So being curious is, is really good for us. Um, you, you asked the question about consuming information because we're curious but not engaging and expressing our curiosity. It's a really great question. The best way to be curious is to, is to learn by doing. For example, how do the seven C's kind of fit into all of this? Perhaps you're a musician, perhaps you learned classical music, and suddenly you want, you want, to, do, you want to learn jazz music. Um, I love jazz, I play a lot of jazz. And jazz, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy, <laughs> jazz is kind of where you end up a little bit. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, jazz I love. And, and jazz is free and jazz is open. But jazz has a very, very specific language. It has a musical language and it has a way of doing things. It's been codified. It's been theorized. Um, great work by Miles Davis and, and, and George Russell. Arthur. And George Russell and Miles Davis created a language of jazz with the standards that allow any jazz musician around the world to sit down, even if they don't speak the same language, and be able to perform and to play together because they understand the structures of these things. Now, it's pretty complicated. But if you start to understand the context, you want to learn jazz. If you understand that it's a language and you're going to have to make new connections like all contexts are, if you understand that you need a community to lead you in, perhaps a guide, somebody who can take you somewhere, then um, they start to lead you, you start to learn, you start to play together, and you find that by doing, by um, focusing down on a few things that will teach you things, that's what we call curation, um, you can get creative, you can get constructive, which is actually making things together and learning and, and doing it. You can be critical and you can find things. Am I just learning the same stuff or am I learning new stuff? You build up confidence and there's a great relationships between confidence and curiosity. It's sort of, it's not a linear relationship, any of these ideas. You can come in at any moment and go out at any moment, but confidence comes through making mistakes. Uh, Paul Ashcroft, my, one of my co-authors, tells a great story about rock climbing. 
and how when you're learning to rock climb, um, you're actually taught to fall. And it's not about how you get up the wall that's important, but it's about learning to be confident in the falling. And you go up a meter and you fall and two meters and fall and three meters and fall. And what happens is as you go further and further up, you become confident in the falling so that you are um, safe in that situation and you know how to cope with the failure. And part of curiosity is about learning and making lots of little failures, if you like. Lots of little high-volume, low-impact failures that over time lead us to become secure in that um, in that situation and enable us to go even further. And so there's this great relationship between confidence, which comes at the beginning, and confidence, which comes at the at the end. There's another question: How do you know the difference between genuine curiosity, seeking out new stuff? and searching out stuff to reinforce our perceptions. Also a great question. Again, it comes back to unconscious bias. There's a wonderful thing called the, um, the, bias, the bias codex or the bias index. But the bias codex is put together by a guy called Buster Benson. And it sort of maps out all the known biases that have been identified within psychology. And there are about 182 of them. But the thing about... Um, being at least aware of bias and unconscious bias is that it enables you to know or to at least step back and reflect about what um, you think, what you know, and where you come from. And, and this helps us move forward. The other thing about how do we know if curiosity is going to pay off and it's not just leading us down a rabbit hole, we don't. But what we want to do is we want to go fast and far and learn new things. And if, if it does lead us down a rabbit hole for a moment, stop and then come back. But it's important to explore those things, to make mistakes, uh, to explore things that don't lead you to where you want to go so you can reflect and then move forward again. Drawing diagrams of where you are and what you've learned, even these little bubble diagrams. You draw by double, say <laughs> so you're learning jazz again and you're learning and you draw a bubble diagram of everything you know about jazz. There's no order to it. What your community is, what your, the theory you know, various jazz musicians, so on. You'll have a, a, a snapshot of what's in your brain at this point in time. You draw that again six months later or again a year after that. And when you've been in it, you will suddenly find so much more information that has been accumulated through that really, really great idea. The, the other thing to do about when you're going down in the age of information overload, how do we know that our curiosity is going to pay off is by showing it to your friends. If you're doing anything, talk to people, find people and show it to them, show them, put a, you know, play the piano for your friends. If you want to do that, play the guitar, play the, if it's music or show them some stuff you've been building or making or doing, um, show it to other people. You'll immediately get feedback. I'm a musician and a composer. And when people perform my music, I used to not be able to be in the room. <laughs> I had to leave the room because it was too, <laughs> I felt like a starfish, you know, you'd be touched and you withdraw. I had to leave, but I've overcome that and learned and, and learned more and more that the performance of my work teaches me a lot about the work and going forward. But it was really something I had to overcome. So I'm extremely empathetic towards people who find it difficult to show. But to show and tell and put yourself out there a little bit is one of the best ways of learning. Another great question. 
The seven C's sound like they can be a framework for a Socratic discussion to evaluate and critique ideas. Would you use them in that way? That's a nice question. Um, why not? Um, we haven't used them that way, um, but the idea of using them instrumentally in that way is is not beyond us. What we have um, started to think about is how we teach this and how we how you learn it and how you might want to use it as a framework to kind of let your way in. I'm, I'm a bit wary about saying this is the framework for curiosity because it's not that. It's simply clusters of what we should pay attention to when we're thinking about curiosity and what all the research is saying and so on. However, using it as a Socratic um, dialogue and uh, to, to move through a series of, of, of questions and move a group, for if you want to do collaborative work, through a critical and curious inquiry, I, um, I encourage you to come and talk to me later and, and uh, I'd love you to do it and, and let's see what, what we can learn from that because, I mean, it, it suggests itself completely um, to doing it in that way and I'm sure it'll be useful. But it's, of course, the world is open and the world is large and when you work with artists who reinvent things from the, the new processes from the beginning, another way to hang, become curious is hang out with creative people because they they mess up the frameworks that we may be used to and that's a good thing to keep things open because it constantly destabilizes our view of the world to enable us to go further and create more connections do i think people are less inclined to be curious because of misinformation yes think of how many people are so annoyed with the current political situation that they've stopped reading the newspapers are so annoyed with the the, the news that comes out of uh, the world on a daily basis, uh, that they'd rather just not read the newspapers and, and not engage with it because it's either too stressful or it's too annoying when a lot of it is disinformation. However, I encourage people to really think about critical bias and unconscious bias as well, because these are tool sets I want to teach the next generation of, of youngsters. You know, if you're going to deal with a world that is radically connected, there are no top-down pyramids anymore. Everybody's in a cloud of connections. Um, one of the key power skills we need to have uh, for our kids, I think, is um, unconscious bias and being aware of the filters that they use so they can reflect, step back, and understand. And emotionally, I had a very nice conversation with Lisa Bodell um, on our podcast the other day where she was telling about her son who traveled with her from the United States to Madrid and was telling her... Um, he said to her how weird everything was in Spain, how weird you know, eating was and how weird the food was and how weird his experience was. And she had a conversation with him and said, and came to the conclusion that it's not weird, it's only different. And being able to give kids the idea that it's not weird, it's only different. And if it's different, we're then open to explore it. It's a nice way of kind of taking ourselves down those routes. Here's a, here's a question. Uh, how do you not get frustrated when you realize that there are lots of things to learn and discover in this life, but you don't always have the time to cover everything? This innate instinct of curiosity could be two swords, I agree. Um, yes, there's a huge amount of things to get interested in about. Of course there are. It's wonderful. Um, we just take a look. We had a great conversation with Christian Bush, who's just written a book, a colleague of mine from the London School of Economics just written a book uh, about serendipity and it's about how to make your own luck. And they did an experiment where they, um, social experiment, there was a Starbucks 
and they filled it with people and they had a person, um, an empty seat, and next to that empty seat was a very interesting and powerful person who could help anybody who sat in the empty seat. They also put a five pound note on the ground at the entrance to the Starbucks. And then they did some analysis uh, uh, with working with people who were innately optimistic and people who were pessimistic or depressed. It was um, a very interesting study because they then asked them to go in, walk down the street, go into the Starbucks and have sit down and have a coffee. That was it. And the people who were optimistic tended to walk down the street, smile, pick up the five pound note that was at the door on the floor, pocket it, uh, find the empty seat and sit next to a person, have a conversation with the person um, and typically exchanged numbers with that person because of the quality of the conversation they had. People who were pessimistic um, tended to walk down the street, ignore the five pound note and not even see it, uh, sit down and uh, not necessarily talk to the person next to them, maybe have a coffee. And when they compared the two experiences, uh, they boiled it down to attitude and to perspective. And having an attitude of being open and understanding that there is so much wonder in the world and understanding that it is all, we are surrounded by context, which is incredibly rich. Um, we make our own luck that people who are more open and looking around and engaged with the world make their own luck. It'd be interesting to see what you think about that, because I think that can cope with frustration. And also, um, you know, if you're frustrated with having too much to do, choose one thing, just pick one thing and say, I'm going to go deep rather than broad on that. Kind of the problem of the internet. If you're just following your pleasure or your bias, you're just connecting to things and surfing randomly, you're sure you might learn something. But when you really learn something is when you have a, set yourself a task or a question. I want to learn about the history of Venice uh, and its uh, impact on our world today. Great question, because it was huge. Or I want to learn about Charles Darwin and uh, evolution. Or another great question, I want to um, learn about Wedgwood, Josiah Wedgwood and all the experiments that he did to try and recreate an ancient pottery and how he set up Stoke, um, Stoke on Train and, and the whole thing, you know, became this pottery industry and based on powerful science. Here's the other thing. There's a relationship between, um, we relate to information emotionally. We know this more and more. We don't relate necessarily to information rationally, but at the same time, we also know that there is rational science and there is, you know, development of scientific ideas, which are proven and how to negotiate the emotional with the rational, I think, is also one of the key skills of being curious, to be able to follow things that motivate you, make, really get you interested, but also to um, make sure that what you're learning is fact and factually based. Again, another power skill for living in the digital age. Do I think people are less inclined to be curious because of misinformation? I think we did sort of answer that about the answer is yes, but I think we have to resist that. I think, I think personally, we have to um, resist 
being uh, less inclined to be curious because it's only by being curious that we keep the world open and we move things forward. I had a wonderful podcast with um, Jennifer Higgy, who is the editor of Freeze magazine, the contemporary art magazine. And Jennifer is really focused a lot on um, sorting out the whitewashing of women out of <laughs> art history. She talked about how, um, you know, the two great texts for teaching art in the 20th century had no women artists in it at all. And this is crazy because women have always been at the heart of art, uh, whether it's craft art or whether it's you know, contemporary art or East, Eastern art or Western art, there's always, women have always been in it and involved. And she talks about two great artists. The first woman in the West to kind of make a uh, self-portrait was a woman called um, Sofonisma Anglesma. And Sofonisma Anglesma was Italian and she came from a family and she was highly educated, but as women were owned effectively by their fathers and by their brothers and kept apart, they had no role in society other than marriage, it was thought at the time. But she resisted, she had incredible talent, she could draw things, and to the extent that her father sent um, a picture that she'd drawn of a young um, uh, girl laughing to Michelangelo, um, documented this is, and Michelangelo re returned and said, uh, returned the image and said he'd rather see a picture of a young boy crying. And so Sofonisma took that as a challenge and she drew a picture of a young boy crying um, and specifically um, being pricked by a, a, a pin. And it was so exquisite that Michelangelo and her became friends and they started to work together. And she became a great, a great uh, portraitist and a great painter. Unfortunately, as she got older, um, she stopped signing her work. So there's a lot that can't be put to her. But having said that, the Prado did an amazing job this year and put in just before lockdown, put a beautiful um, show together of her work with, with another, um, another great um, lady from history um, called Lavinia Fontana, who, who also a, a wonderful woman in art history. The thing about Jennifer is that she, Jennifer Higgy is that she explores widely and, um, she really looks at great women in art and she sort of um, rails against the kind of narrow frameworks that, that frame things in a particular way. The thing about curiosity is it takes us out of those frameworks. She talks about being restless with received truths. And I think that's a really powerful thing for, that I took home from um, talking with Jennifer about being restless um, about with received truths, constantly saying, hang on, what is this about? Why is it considered to be the truth? And if we can reflect on that and not be emotionally involved with the specifics until we understand what it's about, I think we're on, we're on a great road of curiosity, teaching us something. Here's another question. What was the name of the book about bringing your own luck you've mentioned? That's called The Serendipity Mindset, and it's by Christian Bush. Another great thing about um, curiosity is about being messy and being comfortable with messiness. And messy thinking at the beginning of the process uh, of being curious leads to something new. Um, you, you, you can just imagine um, a messy child's room or a messy playroom or a messy um, <laughs> artist studio. You know, a, a very tidy child's playroom uh, tells you something. 
it usually tells you that the children aren't playing at that point. And there's something about being messy and, and exploring things in a in an open and messy way that's really important at the beginning point of curiosity. Um, messy thinking we used in the book, our research, we just put it all into the notes until it got to a point where we were able to start clustering that mess and things became uh, clear and they fell into these clusters of the, the seven seas that we talk about. How can we expose ourselves to new experiences and people with lockdown conditions? That's a really good challenge. I mean, the thing about lockdown is we've, I think, retreated into the safety of people that we know. But um, there are huge numbers of things going on. An enormous amount of things have been transferred into the digital realm. This conference being exactly one of these, exposing yourself to conferences such as these and many new ideas has got to be one way of doing things. Another thing is to join stuff online. People are singing online. People are doing things. I found myself, I mean, I'm, I'm a musician. At the beginning, I was afraid, as everyone else was, about food and toilet paper and all the rest of it. And I had to start keeping a logbook just to make sure that I was covering what I needed to do to look after myself and then, you know, also started to look, keep a logbook about the things I needed to do beyond myself. Part of that was kind of connecting to people. I, I've had the great privilege of, of doing the um, Curious Advantage podcast series, um, which is amazing. I have to say, I go back and listen to it and I'm kind of overwhelmed myself with the people that we've been able to talk to. And I found my sanity if during lockdown was... Um, really helped by talking to interesting people who had different perspectives from my own. And that challenged me. And then, of course, getting a bicycle. <laughs> being, being on a bicycle got me out and meant, I, you know, we couldn't go to gym, but I could at least get out there and, and be physical. Um, I would say that the two things go hand in hand. Keep yourself fit and keep yourself connected. Um, um, really important to expose ourselves to new experiences and to people. Some of the other things we've been um, talking about with curiosity. We've learned a lot about, um, as I said, the neuroscience, but we've also learned a lot about society. Uh, all the great societies in the past, the great epochs that we consider great or perhaps were most successful, they may not have been the most, <laughs> um, they, the, they may not have had the greatest values in terms of um, how they treated people, but um, you know, the greatest and most successful empires always have had structural curiosity built into it. Uh, Republic of Venice, I've mentioned already, it was built up along structures of scuole, like schools, where people would get together and really take the science of something forward. You know, Titian invented painting on canvas in, in, uh, in Venice because of canvas came from sails of ships and you could roll them up and take them places rather than painting on board or on frescoes. Um, the the squirrelers are devoted to navigation, uh, defense, um, strategy. All of these schools in Venice existed. People would, they invented banking and, and, and double entry bookkeeping just so that they could um, keep accounting for all the money that they were making from, from their voyages. They also invented um, very perhaps the first um, assembly line uh, when it came to building ships. If you go to the Arsenale in, in Venice today, you can see where great sea-going, ocean-going triremes were built, 
And at the height of their power, they could create a trireme in four hours from scratch. That's because they got into modular building, they got into moving things along like an assembly line in the water, and they had enormous numbers of people, not slaves at all, people involved in the, in the society, all of whom had their roles and, and uh, clearly defined, and then all were living in community. The whole of Venice is divided into these various sestieri, which you could define as bubbles, if you like. And these sestieri, your, your devotion, when you, when you earn some money, for example, from a sea voyage, perhaps you'd invested in a voyage, it had gone off, it had come back, taken glass and beads and gold, and it would come back with pepper and spices and so on, you'd sell it and make big profit, hopefully, that was the idea. Um, you, you had to pay a tax to the doge and to the city, uh, that was uh, 10%. You had to pay uh, 10% to your local sestieri, and you had to put 5% of that into beautifying the church and the communal scuole in your sestieri so that you were also investing continuously in the areas that you lived. Um, and then, and then <laughs> those, that was how taxes worked. Uh, in, in Venice. But these schools and as knowledge centers were ways of really moving knowledge forward and keeping people engaged um, with moving, and they moved knowledge forward uh, in, enormously. Um, is there a link between uh, curiosity and happiness? Yes, there is a direct link. When it comes to learning, as I talked about, some of the neurotransmitters that fire when we go into a new context are make us anxious. All new learning, and when you learn a new, when you meet new people, when you go into a new room, or when you find new information, there will be initially a spark of uh, something that makes us anxious, and we have to determine whether it's safe or not. Once we start laying down neurotransmitters related to new learning, um, it directly leads to happiness uh, and joy, and because it releases endorphins. And serotonin and so and, and so on. What's interesting, though, is that that happiness may not is, is there's no value bias within the brain. The brain doesn't know whether um, what you are learning is good or bad, or it doesn't know whether it's good for you or bad for you in the long run. So, for example, you might learn about baking; it might make you very happy, but it also might make you fat down the line. The brain's not concerned about that at, at this context. You might learn about something that is a skill, whether it's a martial art that can do damage to things. But again, there's no value bias around that. The happiness, the reinforcement comes from learning and specifically learning by doing. Um, we do know that, you know, for example, the famous uh, research around basketball players, people imagining they were putting basketballs into a basket hoop, um, developed as much skill. It was, I think, 35% of the skill of people who were actually putting basketballs into basketball hoops. So imagining stuff is powerful, not as powerful as doing it in the real world, but it is powerful as distinct from people who didn't imagine it at all, their, their skill sets didn't improve at all. So imagining things has an impact on what we're able to learn. And the way that we reinforce and things we learn the best, if you had a great teacher where it was fun, you, the deep learning that goes on, the things that are reinforced and that really move us forward, those are um, really 
directly related to happiness and the happiness hormones that, that come from learning and knowing new stuff, putting ourselves at risk as well. For example, you might be afraid, I don't know, to do something. And perhaps you, you wanted to learn to swim or perhaps you wanted to learn to drive a car and you've never done that. And then you learn to drive a car. Um, or perhaps you learn a new piece of music. You, you um, uh, as I did, I'd, I'd learned a lot of music because it helped keep me sane. Um, you you do new things. You put yourself at risk. You make you go a bit diff- beyond what you used to. You challenge yourself, and that has a hyperbolic relationship to um, the, uh, the happiness that is released as a result. Um, another interesting thing, though, not only you get happiness from learning new things, if you learn with other people. And other people are involved in your in in the learning. The happiness quotient jumps up yet further. So there's a, a deep relationship between learning with others, sharing with others, reinforcing that learning with others, and being happy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.